heard the term, um, a leopard can't change his spots? Okay. I, I'm, I'm, I was trying to wonder this week, I'm trying to go back in my memory banks, when did I first hear that or where did I first hear it from? Um, and it's interesting how sometimes we'll attribute things um, to the scriptures that are not scriptural. For instance, um, uh, waste not, want not is not a proverb. A stitch in time saves nine is not a proverb. That comes from poor Richard's almanac, okay? It's Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> but sometimes they'll say, you know, you'll hear somebody who who's only knows enough about Scripture to be kind of dangerous say, well, you know, the good book says charity begins at home. And realizing that was also in poor Richard's almanac. But, okay. But I think it's interesting... And, and you might think, well, some, can, some sage, some wise person said, a leopard can't change his spots. This is biblical. At a time, in, um, at a time in, in history when the people of God were going completely the wrong direction, frustrated by the depravity of the nation of Israel and predicting their judgment, the prophet Jeremiah, and you can read about it in chapter 13 if you want to go to chapter, uh, Jeremiah 13, uh, Jeremiah says, you know, it's just like a leopard that can't change his spots. Um, I find that really, really interesting. Well, I believe, though, um, you know, remember, Jeremiah was dealing in a, in a really desperate time in history, and we're dealing with another one of those, but I really believe that God can change the spots that a leopard cannot. Um, one of the most distinct, distinctive features of Christianity, and I, I put a kind of a quote here in your... Um, in kind of your opening paragraph today, um, God's grace is so magnificent and his love is so powerful that even the most desperate sinner can turn to him and be forgiven. Isn't that the nature of the gospel message? Isn't that the beauty of it? Well, the kind of the prime example of that, in my opinion, in scriptures, certainly in the New Testament, is the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at his story, begin looking at his story. We'll look at it off and on in the, in the continuation of our study of the book of Acts. In Acts 9, we'll be in the kind of the waning verses of chapter 9. Uh, Cole helped, helped us deal last week with, you may have met Saul um, a little bit last week as Cole talked about Stephen and, and his ministry and even this, it referenced the stoning of Stephen. But uh, Saul was on that, on, on that piece. Now, um, you'll remember later on when we, just, when we get back to him, um, we won't be there next week, but we'll be there on weeks to come. We'll call him Paul. Um, that name was adopted by probably chapter 13 in Acts. But here, his name is Saul. And uh, I wonder if he was named after uh, the first king of Israel. Um, I don't know that, but he was a Benjamite, so that was likely that he probably was. And... Um, um, what we're going to see in Saul is um, this idea of radical conversion. Literally, um, even when we look today at, at skeptical reactions to his message, once he's met Jesus, uh, we're going to look at those as indicators that his life was so different and, frankly, that people aren't sometimes as forgiving as God is. Okay? We'll kind of see that woven through the story today. When we don't believe that other people can be transformed, 
We make it difficult for God's grace to be effective with them. We'll see that in the work that Saul is trying to do that's kind of hampered today. But God connects Saul during that period of time with some people that uh, believed in him and helped him along the way. Now, if what you and I know about the Apostle Paul or about Saul here is he is rightly regarded as the Lord's point man for, for bringing the gospel to the world, to the Gentiles. Um, um, early on, so far in our, our discussion in the book of Acts, the, the church is focusing its evangelistic work primarily on uh, Jerusalem, the area right around Judea and Jerusalem and, and um, thereby. Well, as Jesus said in Acts 1.8 in one of his commission verses, the gospel will go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Paul will be uh, kind of the point man for making sure that that happens. Now, when we looked last week at the stoning of Stephen, or, or literally at, the, at that chapter in the book, you realize that um, things were getting pretty tight and pretty oppressive. And, um, and it all kind of begins with this stoning of Stephen. And as that takes place, the church kind of disperses from Jerusalem. And um, um, so as they do so... Um, there are some that are appointed by uh, the high priest to kind of wipe out that message or follow them around. And Saul is one of those guys. He'll end up in the town of Damascus. Um, we're going to kind of skip that. But he'll end up in the little city of Damascus, quite a big city actually, of Damascus, about 150 miles to the north, and uh, trying to kind of destroy the work that was going on there in the name of Jesus. Back up with me one page to chapter 8, and I want to pick up in verse 2. On that day, now that's talking about the day Stephen was put to death. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed back behind, at least for a time, in Jerusalem. Some devout men buried Stephen and made, some lam made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church. That's a strong word, isn't it? Ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So that's our guy. All right? He is going 90 miles an hour in one direction. What's that direction? What's his goal? Say it again. He's really wanting to wipe out this whole message. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus, the stories of that, even the teachings of Jesus, he's doing all he can to wipe out that message and therefore would have even derailed you and me being here a couple of thousand years later, right? So we're going to pick up the story kind of there. Um, uh, Saul begins to destroy the church. And having learned that there are Christians in Damascus, Saul's on his way to find them when he has what one commentator would call a remarkable encounter with Christ. Now, the only challenge I would have to that statement, it was remarkable. But can you imagine an encounter with Christ that wouldn't be remarkable? He certainly had one uh, while he was going 90 miles an hour in the wrong direction. And, um, and that is going to change his entire life 
Jesus appears personally to him to call Saul to be his witness to not just the Jews, but especially to Gentiles. We're in about A.D. 34, and our, our text for today is going to pick up about three days after that encounter with Christ, and immediately after Saul was ministered to by a guy by the name of Ananias that came behind him. Now let's go then, if we can, to verse 19 in chapter 9 of Acts. Bob, can I get you to read 19 down through 25? Okay, we said he was going as fast as he could in the direction of wiping out the church. By the time we get to verse 25, what's going on? He's going radically the other way. Now, we're going to have to talk about that just a little bit here. And what I want to say here is that Paul's attitude change and his life change is as, um, it's, it's as sudden as it was radical. Now, those two things really are interesting to me. His life change was both sudden and radical. What do I mean by radical? Completely opposite. Somebody else? It's a, it's a reverse. It's, um, when you think of a radical today, what do you think of? I'm sorry? Oh, you kind of think of ISIS. That's true. You think of somebody who is politically radical. So you might think of somebody left wing, or if you're on the left wing, you might think of somebody right wing. Okay? You think of somebody who's just out on the edge, don't you? This guy is now as out on the edge on the other side as he was on this side. Uh, and that came suddenly in this dramatic, wonderful encounter with, with Jesus earlier in, in chapter 9, actually, that we're not going to read through today. Now, my question is here, as Bob began to read here, uh, kind of what Saul begins to be up to right after his conversion. Uh, I mean, he doesn't waste a whole lot of time. He goes right to work trying to convince other people of what he's seen and what he believes now and what he's heard. Uh, my question is then, how much does Saul know? He's, he's a three-day-old Christian. How much does he know about Jesus? All right, And we're going to talk about why he would know some things about Jesus. First of all, He's had a lot of experience. So, uh, first of all, and the word I'm going to let you put in your blank there, is he's interviewed a lot of Christians. Okay? And I, I, I put that word in there, and I wrote literally in a, in a parenthesis out beside it. Yeah, we'll go with that word. But the truth is, he interrogated a lot of Christians, okay, um, right before they were being put in jail. He's talked to lots of Christians. He's familiar with their arguments. You could say he's heard all that before. He's heard it time after time after time. Um, without being um, 
morbid here, and I just barely referenced it a couple of weeks ago. But, you know, I think of those children, young people, and some not so young, who were asked by a gunman just a few weeks ago in Portland, tell me about your religion. Somebody said, um, in the wake of that tragedy, said, you know who was the most um, courageous person in America in those days? Was the second person who claimed Christ after watching the first one having been put to death. I find that's really interesting. Well, Paul's interrogated a lot of those kinds of people. So who is Jesus to you? He knows their story. Uh, could it be that he could quote a lot of that already? Uh, he knew the argument. Secondly, he probably as much as anybody in his day, anybody living on the planet on his day, knows the prophecy, knows messianic prophecy and other prophecy. So the word that goes in number two there, he's familiar with messianic prophecy. In other words, he knows the promises the Old Testament made to Abraham, Father Abraham. He knows the promises that were made to King David. He can quote all those. Uh, you hand him, a, you hand him uh, the uh, scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He can take you through all that stuff and tell you what it's talking about. He's one of the noted scholars of his day. Um, so he, he kind of has all that under his belt already. He's already prepared. He's prepared for that all of his adult life. So not only has he heard all these stories about Jesus from people he's interrogating, but he knows the prophecies about the Messiah because he studied it all his life. And then third, and all importantly, his message then has a divine revelation to it. Because Jesus came to him personally. And I'm the one that you're persecuting. You know, when people have a radical conversion, sometimes it's not all that well interpreted or taken. Um, I, I read this week about um, kind of an article talking about, was Paul just nuts? Was he just crazy? Um, it, it's interesting that mental health professionals have long been interested in the religious conversion experiences of their patients. Uh, some of those professionals think many such experiences to be delusional. Um, and they write about them in scholarly journals, believe it or not. For example, one article looked at conclusions of a previous study regarding schizophrenia-like psychoses of epilepsy in which mystical delusional experiences were remarkably common. The same piece made reference to a previous article titled, Was the Apostle Paul an Epileptic? Another, examined, another study examined the conversions of 22 religious professionals who had received psychoanalytical treatment for their mental disorders. Two were diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenia. Three were suffering from psychoneurotic depression. Seven were obsessive compulsive reactions. And the remaining 10 had personality disorders. This could imply that most of it, if not all, religious conversion experiences are explainable as just mental illness. You know, I, I think of, uh, of what about Bob? And, you know, maybe, it, maybe it's true of me. It's, you know, roses are red, violets are blue, I'm schizophrenic, and so am I. I mean, you may, you may, maybe that's what, you know, you're, you're looking at me, you're saying, I knew there was something not quite right about that guy. Isn't it interesting that, that those who don't get it would say, you're nuts. 
Don't you think in Paul's day, there were a lot of his former friends who were saying, Paul, you're nuts. In fact, by Acts 26, he meets King Festus. And Festus, I mean, Paul is driving hard for a decision from Festus in 26, telling his story. And Festus says, oh, your learning has made you crazy. Isn't it interesting? No, he's not crazy. He's thinking more clearly than he's ever thought in his life. Because the master is now running the show. Not him anymore. Well, so as he begins to share these things, in verse 21, there's kind of a, a shocking reaction. It's, it's kind of, um, it's probably um, intuitive for us to kind of pick that up. But how can someone who's done what he's done now say what he is saying? How can someone who's just done all these things he's done be saying the kinds of things that he's saying? And so their reaction is a little bit standoffish, and you can kind of understand. Uh, Maybe they're thinking, uh, this is just a ploy to put me in prison. A lot of that is going on, but he continues. He talks, then begins to go synagogue to synagogue and talk to um, the leaders in the synagogue. And what he finds there is even though they are versed in scriptures, the synagogue leaders are no match for his ability to debate the scriptures. Would somebody kind of flip over, and I want you to go to Acts 17, and I want somebody to read verse 2, 3, and 4. Skip 1 is okay, but let's read 2, 3, and 4. Somebody do that for us? Acts 17, 2, 3, and 4. Here's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a guy who's the best debater of his day. He's the greatest Old Testament scholar of his day, although they would call it the Testament. They didn't have the New Testament, right? They would, they, he knows the covenant. He knows all the prophecies. Add to that the fact that he now has this additional power of his personal experience having, having met Jesus on the road to Damascus. By the way, your own personal experience is really, really, really hard to argue with. Did you know that? That's why, if, if you will tell me, you know, I really don't have a gift for evangelism, I get that. But all I'm asking you to do is to be able to articulate your story. What has Jesus done for me? Because that's really, really, really hard to argue with. So we've got all these things kind of coming um, coming synergistically together here. So, how do the, the uh, religious authorities react to it? Well, they resort to violence. Track with me a little bit. We're going to go 13. 13, this is, these are things that are starting to happen. 
The Jews inside of the devout, I'm in verse 50 of 13. But the Jews incited, incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. That's going to come later. But you see what they're doing. 14, I'm going to go to 14, verse 5. When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, we're talking about Paul and Barnabas again here, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia and Lystra and Derbe. So there's, there's uh, everywhere they go uh, from this point forward, uh, there's violence. It's going to come about. Look in 14 and 19. Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having won over the crowds, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. You read stories where he, uh, on more than one occasion, is given... 39 lashes, he's beaten. Well, why they give him 39? Because their thought is the 40th is going to kill him. They all but kill him several times. So uh, as he begins to do this, violence ensues. Their plan, if you look back in chapter 9 at verse 24, the plan becomes pretty bold. All right? Um, their plot became known to Saul. In other words, the, the Jews plotted together, verse 23, to do away with him or to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They're watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. Now, would somebody go over for me to 2 Corinthians 11? There's a couple of verses that parallel what's going on here. He's going to tell the story when he's talking to the Corinthians about what happened to him here in Jerusalem. Um, um, 2 Corinthians, um, actually in Damascus here, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, and I want us to read verse 22 and t- 22 uh, to 24. 2 Corinthians 11, verse, Cindy, would you get that? 22 down to 24. Now jump, if you would, please, down to 33. Same chapter. Isn't it interesting? He's talking about what happens to him here is described in, in 9. Okay? So, first of all, they become really bold. When they realize that they can't argue with him, they decide to kill him. Or at least beat him. I, I find that really interesting. And, and, um, but does that sound familiar, by the way? This is in Jerusalem. They do that to him here. They've done the same thing at Damascus. They did the same thing to Jesus, right? And they even solicit here um, an unlikely pagan ally. And part of this, you can read about uh, the king of Damascus is helping him watch the door, watch the gate. He's got people helping him watch the gate. As soon as this guy tries to leave, we're going to snag him and kill him. So what do his friends do in verse 25? They help him escape. He gets help in escaping. They couldn't argue with him, so they decided to do away with him. Now, Saul is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to leave town being lowered by a basket through a hole in the wall. Okay, And he slips out of town. He travels that 150 miles back to Jerusalem. 
there, you can read about in Galatians his route. But uh, he's going to go back, and he's hoping, all right, this is interesting, you've got to think about what's going on in his mind. He gets back there, he wants to go in and introduce himself to Peter and James and John and the disciples and say, hey guys, I'm on your team now. Let's look, let's look at the reaction. Look, somebody read verse 26. What's the reaction? You bet they were afraid of him. What was going on the last time they saw him? He's arresting them, putting them in prison, having some of them killed. They, they, the last time they saw this guy may have been while they were laying, while those who were stoning Stephen were laying their coats at his feet. I'm not sure he's naive at this point. I just think he thinks, okay, I've had this. I'm, I've had this radical experience. I've got to introduce myself to the guys who are running the church and tell them, I'm on your team now. But their reaction was not exactly what he predicted here. And um, he was unable to join them. There again, they wonder if this is, they're fearful of it. Maybe this is another ploy. Uh, this guy's pretty shrewd. Maybe this is another ploy. So if you read 26 and you read 28, there's something that happens between the two. Look at 28 just for a second. Um, we see that. He, they wouldn't accept him when he came in. So in 28, he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Isn't it interesting? If verse 27 was not in there, it would be like, okay, what happened? But there is a verse 27 in there. Somebody read it. Remember the guy that we met back in chapter 4? The Levitical Cypriot named Joseph? And they called him Barnabas because he was such an encourager. Barnabas is doing what Barnabas is do. And it's interesting here that I think Barnabas must have been a guy of some pretty good influence. And it could have been just because he was so generous, but I don't think it was just that. Barnabas was able to, to broker a meeting between Peter and James and John and Saul. Uh, guys, I need you to get together. I've got somebody I want to introduce you to. Okay, he's Barnabas, right? And he shows up with Saul on his arm. And don't you know, it's like, what are you doing? And Barnabas says, I want to introduce you to my new friend, who is also Jesus' friend. And therefore, he's our friend. He needed an encourager. He needed an encourager. Now, I read this week that just two years ago, in 2013, at the University of Akron, their graduation rate was only about 40% for first-time, full-time students. So the school began a pilot program to assist what they called emergent students, which is kind of an elegant way of describing those at risk of dropping out because of being unprepared for the rigors of college life. And the program um, involved hiring part-time staff members as what they call academic encouragers. Interesting. And it radically changed their system. 
Isn't it true that humanity in general and Christianity in particular can use more encouragers? Now, what I want to ask you here is there is a gift of encouragement or admonishment that's described in the epistles. And I get that, that that's a spiritual gift. But what I want to ask you is, does that mean that the rest of us can sidestep this necessary element in our lives of being encouraging to other people? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Barnabas definitely had the spiritual gift of encouragement, but I don't think that meant that there was only one of those guys needed in all the church. I don't think that's what we, we can kind of assume from, um, from our church and our world. I think there are only two, I read about this this week, and I was really um, kind of impressed by it and, and encouraged by it. The only thing that you need to, in order to become an encourager is a heart to help and a willingness to take a risk. A heart to help and a little bit of a willingness to take a risk. That's what Barnabas did. He took a risk. He introduced a new friend to his established friends. And it literally changed history. In verse 28 and 29, uh, the same thing happens to him in Jerusalem about that happens over there in Damascus. They don't like it. They, um, um, the, the, uh, the Jewish authorities don't like it. They begin to threaten him. They begin to... Uh, um, um, when he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Verse 29, he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. He's still arguing the point, and they're still threatening to kill him. It sounds familiar. Pretty much like what happened in Damascus. So, in verse 30, they help him get out of town again, and they send him away to Tarsus. What does he know about Tarsus? Hometown. It's in the, on the island of Cilicia, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. They send him kind of home. This is a necessary trip. It's kind of a precursor. Uh, later on, our friend Barnabas is going to come find him there um, and say, hey man, there's some neat things going on in Antioch. And he and Barnabas spent a year or more in Antioch encouraging people there. They sent him home. There would be safety there. Barnabas will go there later and get him. But that's kind of where we go. Now, Look at the last verse that we'll talk about today, and then I want to bring this to a close. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up. And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and continued to increase. The assessment here, this is one of those summary verses that we'll occasionally encounter, encounter at the end of a chapter or at the end of a section in the book of Acts. This summary kind of a, um, passage here is interestingly to me, both accurate and awkward in its description of the church in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem after Paul left. What is, was it described at after Paul left? Peaceful. I've never caught that before. Paul got out of town. Things settled down a little bit. I don't know what Paul thought about that, but he was going to cause trouble everywhere he went anyway. Now, had the leopard changed his spots? You bet he had. Actually, God had changed his spots. He made a leopard into a cheetah. How did they know he changed? How did they know he changed? Well, It's interesting here. 
Uh, there's a little detail that I've always missed, and, and I kind of caught it this time in some reading I had. Um, they send him back to Tarsus, um, and um, you know, you and I know that he's called by Jesus to, to minister to Gentiles, many of them Greek-speaking Jewish people that he'll encounter all over the known world at that time. And, um, and we think, well, he probably feels drawn to Jews that have kind of a Greek background because that's kind of him. It's kind of what he was like. But if we look a little deeper, we might find something different. Saul first appears in Acts at the stoning of Stephen, who was killed after he was preached to Jews from Greek-speaking areas. I find that intriguing. Stephen had worked among those from Cilicia. You can read about that in 6.9. The Roman province, this is the Roman province where Tarsus, Saul's hometown, was located. That fact can explain his own involvement in, involvement in Stephen's death. He didn't want this getting back to Tarsus, right? But isn't it interesting that that which he tried to stamp out in his own hometown, Saul not only changed his outlook on Christ, but you could argue continued Stephen's work after his death. I never thought about it that way until I read this this week. Continued Stephen's work among uh, his own fellow expatriates as he tries to undo his earlier damage. You can bet he's changed. Saul's conversion was truly complete. Now here's my question. Would you like to change your world? Can I tell you something? The world needs to change it. Do I have to make that case? I could start and we wouldn't be gone by noon, but the world needs some change. Here's what I want to suggest to you and to me. If I want to change my world, I have first got to be changed myself. I've got to allow the only one who can change the leper spots to change mine. If you want to be a world changer, you got to be willing to let him change me first. An old song that we don't hear uh, the fourth stanza from ever. There, there's a really the song. It's an old song from like 1865, written by a, um, a person, a, a lady by the name of Elvira Hall. Uh, it's sung a lot in our churches. It's sung some in our church today, and it's, uh, it's an old song called "Jesus Paid It All." But the, rarely sung is the fourth stanza. Here, here's the fourth stanza. You ready? Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. That's this reference. Can the leopard spots be changed? Only one way. And if I want to change my world, I'll ask God to begin to show me where my spots are and begin by saying, change me, Lord, now so that I can make a difference. I'm glad Saul did. We'll be in chapter 11 next week. We're going to look at what Peter is, his message and where he's going. And uh, I'll see you then, okay?